Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by Game Time. Hey, buying tickets to your favorite events shouldn't be stressful. With killer deals on last-minute tickets and their best price guarantee, you can snag the tickets without the stress with Game Time. Download the Game Time app now, create an account, and use code GOODSEATS for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, create an account, redeem the code GOODSEATS for $20 off. Last-minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. Download Game Time today. And now, here's our show. Welcome back to 549 right now. Opening day is tomorrow for the Asheville Tourists at McCormick Field. The first pitch will be thrown out at 7.05. And joining us this morning is tourist owner Brian DeWine and Mr. Moon. Thank you both for being here. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Incredible. The season is getting started. Not a lot of returning players, but a lot of excitement. Yes, yes. Um, we got a few back from last year, whole new team, which is exciting. New players. Um, of course, Mr. Moon's back again this year, along with Teddy. Um, got a lot planned for this baseball season, so we're ready. What can fans expect? How are we going to get them pumped up? I mean, tomorrow is a big day. Big day, big day. I mean, I really say tomorrow is the beginning of spring. Summer's right around the corner. School's almost out. It's just an exciting time. Uh, we got a lot planned for the ballpark. We got a ton of promotions all year round. Of course, tomorrow's Thirsty Thursday. Some new things at the ballpark. We got some good food there, of course, as always. Lots of beer, craft beer. Uh, we got a new T-shirt gun. We can launch those T-shirts in the crowd. Um, we also got a courtesy vehicle. Fans can uh, we uh, any fans who can't walk up the hill, we'll right. take them up with a golf cart. Okay, oh, that's, that's great. great. That really is. And keeping it fun. Yes. Even if the game gets out of hand either way, that's a big part of this. Yes, yes. We have a promotion every single between inning. We do a promotion, a giant underwear, like I mentioned, T-shirts, uh, anything for the kids. Even if you hate baseball, we, this is the place to go and enjoy. All right. So talk to us a little bit about um, the players this year. Yeah, yeah. Um, we got a few returning players. Uh, David Dahl is our returning star. He he was the number one draft pick two years ago. He had a, got injured last year, unfortunately. Only played about 10 games in Asheville, but he is back, and uh, hopefully we have him for the whole season. Maybe so if he doesn't move up. If he doesn't move up, yes, yes. But yeah. that's the plan for them to move up. So if they move up, it's good. Well, that's yeah. the thing. And when you look at the majors right now, you see player after player who came through Asheville. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Colorado Rockies are filled with um, ex-tourists on their roster. Plenty of other players are there, and, of course, there's even some Super Bowl players who are ex-Doors. There you go. We talked yes, a lot about Mr. Yes, Wilson. Yes. <laughs> so this is going to be exciting for you guys and for, um, for the whole organization. Yeah, yeah. We love opening day. I mean, once September hits, we'd have a countdown clock in our office, and it's going and going, and now it only serves one number. Brian, thanks so much. Thanks for having Mr. me. Mr. Moon, awesome. I yes. think you're one of the best characters in all of baseball. I really do. Flattering. You're very flattering to Mr. Moon. It's awesome. smiling. Look. <laughs> See, I made him smile. I don't usually do that to people. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Well, hello there, everybody. My name is Tim Hanlon, as announced, and it, of course, is Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is, uh, as always, devoted to what used to be in the realm of professional sports. Thank you for finding us. Lots going on in the world. Lots of podcasts out there for you to choose from. Thank you for uh, finding us and spending a few moments uh, this week as uh, we journey back into baseball. It's uh, opening day uh, now in the books and uh, the brand new uh, enhanced, sped up, new ruled uh, version of Major League Baseball now uh, upon us. Uh, pretty interesting stuff thus far. I think lots more interestingness to come as the uh, year progresses. 
and um, a, a bevy of uh, baseball conversations coming your way uh, as the uh, season progresses. Uh, and uh, we're going to kind of kick off this season, if you will, with uh, with one of them. Uh, our friend Ryan McGee from ESPN.com and various ESPN platforms is here with us this week. And we're going to be talking about his brand new book called Welcome to the Circus of Baseball. It's a conversation about his unique summer internship experience uh, with the Asheville tourists uh, of the, uh, well, this is back in 1994, it was, but uh, they were uh, at the time the minor league uh, franchise um, of the Colorado Rockies, Them, they also being uh, a brand new on the scene in that season of 1994. And uh, minor league baseball, uh, the South Atlantic League is where uh, the team lives now, uh, but uh, it's had its various uh, journeys, shall we say, through various leagues uh, over its very long and very rich history. The South Atlantic League actually has had a couple of different incarnations. Uh, you may remember uh, that in 2021, it was renamed in the wisdom of Major League Baseball, the High A East League, which is about as warm and fuzzy as you're going to find uh, in the, in burlap sack manufacturing. Uh, it was uh, in the uh, South Atlantic League from 1980 to 2020 when the name changed, and they smartly, major and minor league baseball, switched the, the name back to something much more memorable and much more... Uh, frankly, fun and nostalgic, uh, renaming it again or, or calling it now going forward, again, the South Atlantic League. But we're going back to 1994 when it was firmly ensconced in the first version of the South Atlantic League. Actually, it was probably the second version or third version. It's had a lot of different versions known as the South Atlantic League. But um, 1994 was a very interesting time uh, for baseball. We're looking at a, a Major League Baseball strike uh, for minor league baseball. Uh, in particular, getting a lot more attention. You had Michael Jordan uh, playing his uh, uh, his time uh, in the White Sox uh, minor league organizations, Birmingham in particular. Uh, all kinds of fun stuff. A lot of interesting uh, spotlights uh, uniquely on minor league baseball at the time. And Ryan McGee uh, kind of stumbling through his post-collegiate uh, you know, career, trying to figure out how and what he could be and what he wanted to do. Uh, Journalism, uh, being a part of the sports uh, media, uh, interviewing with ESPN back in the day, and and uh, perhaps uh, the reason why he wound up taking this job, uh, and just the as you can imagine, the uh, innumerable stories about literally being in the midst as a grunt work intern uh, for a you know pretty well known and well revered. Uh, and long-lasting uh, minor league baseball franchise. And um, we get into all kinds of fun stuff. And it's all the kind of curious little side notes and situations and craziness that you might uh, you might uh, expect from uh, a year or a season uh, in the midst of high A minor league baseball. Um, the clip that you just heard there uh, was from uh, actually a number of years since this story, but I thought it was kind of uh, interesting to kind of tee it up is from WLOS TV channel 13 uh, in Asheville, North Carolina, serving uh, that whole region. And um, uh, a lot of things going on in that clip. But um, uh, even though the DeWine family and this is uh, the son of uh, former uh, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, who is uh, was at the time and still is the uh, the team owner. Uh, lots going on in this clip. You could search it up on YouTube called Tourists 
opening day. Uh, this was from April of 2014. Um, it, it's fun to watch because uh, the mascot of this team, Mr. Moon, literally is on set there with the uh, two reporters and Brian DeWine, the owner of the franchise. Uh, and it says nary a word, you know, nods his head and kind of points in the general direction when uh, when asked a question. But this is also, you know, a, a interesting thing about, lo- about local TV news. Uh, as uh, you heard the uh, the female anchor uh, uh, note very quickly, uh, this was uh, about 540 in the morning uh, on, a, on a weekday uh, and um, and not the first uh, spot that uh, these folks had to do. Uh, on this morning telecast uh, at News 13, the ABC affiliate there. Uh, regardless, though, you hear things that are uh, not very dissimilar uh, from what we're going to hear about uh, in our conversation with Ryan about promotions and uh, and the excitement of opening day and making it part of the an entertainment experience per se, not necessarily about what's going on on the field. Uh, and uh, just, uh, just a good old-fashioned uh, fun excursion at the ballpark, which is, you know, what baseball – tends to uh, often be, or at least historically has been. And we're going to get into all of that stuff. It's going to be Ryan McGee from ESPN talking about his uh, intriguing journey <laughs> with the Asheville tourists uh, in 1994. And again, his brand new book is called Welcome to the Circus of Baseball. It is, uh, depending on when you're listening to the show, uh, it is either available now or uh, will be available the next day or two. I think we're dropping this episode on the uh, 3rd of April. Uh, and according to Amazon, it will drop on April the 4th. So regardless of whether it's uh, available now or within the next 24 hours or so, uh, by all means, go uh, get yourself a copy. It's a great uh, conversation. You're going to hear Ryan uh, allude to a whole bunch of different stories. Uh, and it doesn't even do it justice because it's just story after story. Uh, and great pictures in there, too. Full color pictures uh, that Ryan has uh, saved from his scrapbook uh, and, uh, and injected into this book. It's it's a very fun read and you will find it highly, highly enjoyable. Uh, of course, we encourage you to go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode, this week's episode, number 298. And uh, you will see a convenient link to the book. And again, it's called Welcome to the Circus of Baseball, a story of the perfect summer at the perfect ballpark at the perfect time. Again, Ryan McGee, the author. And of course, when you click through our little link there on our website, we'll get a couple of shekels uh, of referral love. And we appreciate that, of course, uh, for sure. All right, let's waste no more time. Uh, Let us uh, get into uh, minor league baseball. Let's spin the dial back to 1994, and what the heck Ryan McGee was trying to do with his uh, his career and his life. Let's uh, sort of set the table and try to get into uh, uh, what he was uh, into. And by the way, we kind of start uh, our conversation uh, in and around NASCAR, which is wa- uh, wound up uh, being uh, a lot of the beat that Ryan has uh, been focused on at his time at ESPN. A lot of other things too, like college basketball and all kinds of other sports, baseball and too. But um, we kind of uh, get into a little NASCAR, and I geek out a little bit at my NASCAR uh, fandom as well. But rest assured, we get into baseball uh, pretty quickly. So please have a seat. And uh, as always, please enjoy. One of the areas that I'm fascinated with are or is the, the tracks and how they've come and gone, right? And yep. you know, I love that series that uh, that uh, Dale Jr. put together. Only two seasons. I don't know why there's not a third one. Yeah. On, on Peacock on the Lost Speedway stuff. I I find that stuff fascinating. And you yep. know, and and, and like um, 
you see the return this year for the uh, for the All Star race. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. Right? I mean, so it's just and then Fontana's now on the on the docket. Right. And what's going to yep. happen to Chicagoland? So, uh, yep. you know, it's just really it's interesting to sort of hear and see. And frankly, it also mirrors, you know, some of the the ups and downs and sideways of, of NASCAR's history too. these. Yeah. Teams. And well, and make sure you, you talk to Kelly about that. I know Mike might have been there and Al, too, but I know Kelly was at North Wilkesboro on Tuesday. Um, they had a big uh, test. A, a, a tire test for Goodyear and Kelly was there and it's on, um, but it's crazy. I mean, the fact that the place was closed. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I was born in Rockingham. Well, and, and not to, not to bend it back toward the book, but McCormick field where the Asheville tourists play, they ran a handful of grand national now cup series races in the infield at that ballpark. Um, because when they, when they lost their team for a few years, so like Lee Petty, and Fireball Roberts and all those guys, they all raced in the infield of the ballpark. So, yeah, it, to me, it's the most fascinating thing. And Dale Jr. and I, if it's funny, when I was at McCormick Field working on this book, I was texting Dale Jr. pictures because I got up in the in the woods behind the left field line, and there's still, like, big chunks of asphalt up there that were the racetrack that they built in the infield. And his grandfather, Ralph, raced there. And so I'm – I've been trying to convince Dale Jr. if they do a third season of the shed lost speedways to go to Asheville and do something at old McCormick field. But it's uh, yeah, Dale Jr. He is single-handedly keeping the history of the sport alive. And I appreciate that. Yeah, I do too. And uh, I'd love to get him uh, on the show for sure to talk about that. I, I hope we could regale him and, and convince him uh, perhaps outside the boundaries of the, of the actual season, but uh, I digress. And, you know, any uh, good words you could put in, if we do a good job with your conversation uh, would be certainly appreciated. Of course. I'll do it. Well, and I, and I appreciate you making time for me. And uh, the oh, guy sure. is Mike Davis. If you ever, if you ever, you ever listen to or watch Dale Jr.'s podcast uh, yes. download. Live from, uh, the Mike, Bo- live from the Bojangles studio. Exactly. Well, Mike Davis is one of my favorite people on earth. And if, uh, if you track Mike down, um, he will, uh, he he will absolutely entertain the idea. So, well, let's entertain the idea of this story because it's clear too that I mean you're, uh, it's it, from what we've described already. I mean it's very clear. Uh, you sort of have that uh, that southern twang in your in your voice, <laughs> and the idea of of say NASCAR racing and uh, a minor league team in Asheville and yeah, these things seem kind of almost sort of. Uh, uh, woven into your fabric, I think of your youth. I, I'm guessing you grew up kind of as as a sports fan, uh, and I guess I'm curious as to how that sort of happened, and 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 when did it sort of cross into the transom of, hey, I might be able to make this interest into some kind of job. Yeah, I, I, well, I grew up in a sports house. Um, my father, um, in fact, I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Sidelines and Bloodlines, and I wrote a co-wrote that with my father and my brother. My dad's name is Dr. Jerry McGee. I just had lunch with him today, as a matter of fact, and dad was a college football referee, but dad was also a college baseball player at East Carolina. One was on an NAIA college world series championship team. And I grew up on college campuses. My dad's day job was as a college administrator. And so we were a sports house, but if you grew up in the Carolinas, like I did, you know, we didn't have major league teams. You know, you had the Braves down in Atlanta, you had, uh, you know, an NFL team in Washington, and that was kind of it. And and so we were minor league baseball fans. And, and in a baseball house, um, we looked for baseball games to attend. And and growing up in the, in the Carolinas in the 70s and 80s and in the 90s, 
seemingly every little town in the Carolinas had a minor league baseball team. We lived in Shelby, North Carolina, which is a tiny town right on the edge of the mountains at the start of Western North Carolina. And when I was a kid in the seventies, they had a minor league baseball team. They had a, a, a class A team. It was the Shelby pirates and then the reds in the old Western Carolina league. And so, yeah, our, in my family, we were such sports nerds that we would look at the minor league baseball schedule and go, all right, Fayetteville has a team now, the Fayetteville Generals. You know, let's drive to Fayetteville, and it'd be four hours away. But we would go there because we were collecting ballparks. And so whether it was Fayetteville or Monroe, North Carolina, or Shelby, or Asheville, or Greensboro, or Gastonia, Durham, that everyone knows from Durham Bulls, you know, we traveled the, the, the southeast collecting ballparks when I was a kid, and that's where my love of minor league baseball came from. So how does that uh, uh, manifest, I guess, as you're growing up, going to school, uh, ideating what a career or, or work or job or those kinds of things might happen? I mean, um, it's one thing to be a fan as a kid uh, and obsess, which, you know, arguably yours truly and, and all our other listeners in their own certain way <laughs> have yeah. done and mine sort of has warped into sort of like whatever happened to um, I'm, I'm glad hopefully you don't sort of suffer from that similar, power. <laughs> but so give us a sense of what you're thinking and how you're ideating as you're growing up. So my dream came to me. I remember my, so my, again, my father was, a, was an ACC Atlantic coast conference college football official. And I had my first sideline credentials for a college football game when I was 12 years old, like literally standing on the sideline with the camera that Santa Claus had brought to me you know, the, the Christmas before and taking pictures of a, a top 15 matchup between the UNC Tar Heels and the Virginia Cavaliers and that, got that, run that's over. Pr that's prime impressionable youth period of time. Yeah. And, 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 and I remember distinctly, I remember like it was yesterday looking around on the sideline and seeing all of these reporters and photographers and, you know, uh, support staff members from the two schools and thinking to myself, all of these people are being paid to be here today. You know, how do you do that? And I remember at halftime going up to the to the press box, and they gave us a hot dog and a Pepsi and a bag of potato chips and a chocolate chip cookie. And and I, I remember thinking, this guy's from the Washington Post, you know, and, and this woman's from the Wall Street Journal, and they're all being paid to be here today. How do you get in on this? And so I kind of had this behind-the-rope, childhood when it came to sports particularly college sports and all I could think was there are, there are so many people I see at every sporting event that I know are on the payroll to be here how do you get to do that because all due respect to people who work at the you know for a bank or for an insurance company or for whatever if, I don't want to do any of that if I could figure out a way to to actually receive a paycheck to go to sporting events um and I certainly was not going to be an athlete. I figured out very early on I was not going to play for the Red Sox. I was not going to play, you know, uh, for the New York Giants. But if I could get paid to be there while those teams were playing, then that was the dream. And that was my uh, my dream from a very early age. And, and knock on wood, don't tell anyone, but, uh, but the Walt Disney Company and ESPN, they mail paychecks to my house every week. And uh, <laughs> so I've, I've kept them fooled for a while now. 
Well, I, but I, there's a reason why we're going deep on this because it's it, it's crucial, I think, to to the story that surrounds the book and stuff. So, so how I mean, how then is it further sort of, um, I guess, gel and maybe more uh, specifically um, come into sort of into focus? Like, is it is it classwork? Is it is it internship stuff? Is it and what of of that? Is it is it media? Is it journalism? Is it uh, sports management ish kinds of things? What what, when, and how? For me, it was the media. I mean, my, you know, I, I, I essentially grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina, and my father, again, being a, a, an ACC college football official, because we lived in Raleigh, he was not allowed to officiate North Carolina State Wolfpack football games. But he was allowed to go to scrimmages and to you know do the spring game and to go to practices because the coaches wanted officials there. And so my brother and I would go. My brother was drawn to the ball boys and to the stadium operations people. I was drawn to the press box I'm at a very early age. Um, I've always been fascinated by television, by radio, uh, back then newspapers, magazines, um, what have you. And to me, the ability to tell the story of the event was – I was fascinated by it. My, he, my early heroes growing up were columnists and local sports casters and the play-by-play people that you heard on the radio calling the games. And so that's what I wanted to do. So right out of college, I majored in in broadcast journalism in college at the University of Tennessee. Uh, and right out of school, um, my dream was to be a radio play-by-play person. Unfortunately, you mentioned my accent earlier. Um, particularly in the 90s, they didn't really want anyone that sounded like me to be on the radio or on television. They wanted everyone to sound like Tom Brokaw. Uh, with a very flat, you know, Midwestern accent. Um, but I went to the winter meetings, the baseball winter meetings, which is essentially the big off-season convention and job fair for anyone wanting a job in baseball. And I had called a few high school football games and small college football games in, in eastern North Carolina. And I went down to Atlanta with my cassette tapes, my Memorex tapes in hand, and my resume in hand. And uh, I went looking for a job. And there weren't any – but big surprise, no teams were looking for a 21-year-old just out of college Southern accent play-by-play announcer, but they were looking for interns and $100 a week interns, and the Asheville tourists came calling, and I said, heck yeah, sign me up. All right, so this is your first gig at a college then. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, I, I'm not going to, I don't want to give away too much uh, of this, but there's some, I mean, there's an anecdote after anecdote in this book. It's, it's a, it's a, a, a wild ride and fun. Read. <laughs> it's, it's I, I, um, I guess that the question really is what did you know about what you were signing up for and, and how much did it line up with what you thought you knew? Because it sounds well, like you kind of learned some things that you didn't expect along the way. No, I learned a lot uh, the hard way because I, I went in believing that I knew more than I knew. And again, it was because I had grown up on college campuses. Um, you know, as a kid, I would volunteer for jobs at the football stadium and the basketball arena. You know, I was a, a statistician for the Furman Paladins radio network my junior, senior year in high school. Um, you know, I had covered some high school football games for the local papers. Uh, in Monroe, North Carolina, and, and in Raleigh. And I, I thought I knew how it worked because I had been in, you know, arenas and ballparks and stadiums. I'm like, I know how this goes. But this was a stadium operations job. And for $100 a week cash, you know, as an intern for a minor league baseball team, 
you do everything. One night you might be cooking hot dogs and the next night you might be changing out kegs and filling up the Dairy Queen soft serve machine. And the next night, you know, you might be selling tickets or you might be escorting drunks out of the ballpark and putting them in police cars. I mean, all of this happened every single night. And uh, yeah, that's a long way of saying that I thought I knew what I was getting into for $100 a week cash. But the reality was I had, I had no idea. And uh, and that's how it ended up being, honestly, the best summer of my young life. All right. We're talking 1994, correct? Yeah. Um, so tell me about Asheville, the city, uh, the tourists franchise. What did you know about them? Uh, and they're playing in what was originally known as and apparently now is again known as the South Atlantic League. Yeah. Um, uh, this is we're talking high level a, which is yeah. you know, in the sort of not, not the, the bottom rung, but, uh, you know, a few steps above that sort of in the, in the hierarchy of minor league baseball. Uh, what did you know? And what's the situation of this team in this league that you're walking? Yeah, into it, it wasn't the bottom rung, but you could, you were one step above the bottom rung. You could see the bottom rung from where you were. If you slipped, you were going to go past the bottom rung. And so this is class, low class, a baseball or high class, a baseball. Um, you know, this is really the, the, maybe the second step for any baseball player dreaming of playing in the big leagues. You know, you've got, you know, rookie ball, low class A, high class A, double A, triple A, and then the big leagues. So we're a long ways from the big leagues. We were the class A affiliate of the Colorado Rockies, which was a relatively brand new franchise in major league baseball there was a lot of excitement around that team actually that was that was that was the first year i guess 94 so this was the first year not only of of them i think but or close to it but but the first year of this of this affiliation for this team right absolutely the the team had been affiliated over the years with the brooklyn dodgers and with the houston astros and this was their first year with the colorado rockies because colorado rockies had a brand new farm system and uh we also had a relatively new ballpark in Asheville, McCormick Field, uh, which had been rebuilt just a couple of years earlier. But the original version of McCormick Field is would now be almost 100 years old, built in 1924. The field itself, the playing field, did not change. The ballpark around it did. And it is literally, and I'm not, this is no exaggeration, it is carved into the side of a mountain in downtown Asheville, North Carolina. People might know Asheville now. In fact, I'm, I'm wearing a baseball cap right now with the Asheville Tourist logo uh, etched onto a beer mug because it's known as Beer City USA. That's that's not what it was then. We didn't know what a microbrew was. You know, a craft beer in 1994, you would have thought they were putting craft cheese in it. We didn't know what that was. Now, it's one of the great craft beer destinations uh, in the United States of America. But in 1994, keep in mind now, this is the year – that we all kind of know that Major League Baseball is going to go on strike. It's just a matter of when it's going to be. Now, what we know now is the World Series was canceled that year. This is also the summer that Michael Jordan was playing baseball for the Birmingham Barons, which was class double-A, just one level above us in Asheville. And so maybe more than any other summer, minor league baseball became this alternative to you know, the cocky millionaires and billionaires of Major League Baseball. This became the alternative way to get back in touch with what you loved about baseball. What, what You know, the James Earl Jones speech from Field of Dreams, right? It's all the things that we loved about baseball without all the pretentiousness 
and the billionaires fighting over dollars and, and the labor disputes and all those types of things. And, you know, you could get into a ball game at McCormick Field for four bucks and, and maybe see the future big leaguers and, you know, for a dollar get drunk on Thirsty Thursday. And it was just, um, to me, it was the perfect encapsulation of what we call America's pastime when it comes to baseball. Because you could just sit in the ballpark at McCormick Field or like you can in any minor league ballpark, wear a T-shirt, drink a beer, eat a hot dog, and, uh, you know, have a good time. So so in essence, the, the, the park has been rehabbed, if you will, relatively close to this, right? 92, I guess. It was about a couple of years before you – you should, right. but this is, I guess, consecutively, this is probably one of the, if not the, I think it's one of the uh, longest uh, or oldest uh, continuous uh, ballparks in in minor league baseball's uh, illustrious history. I think. Yeah, it's in the They're conversation. Harder. Yeah, there, there's a there was a ballpark in Vermont, Centennial Field, home of the Vermont Lake Monsters, who recently lost their official minor league baseball affiliation, and so yeah, the Asheville tourists. Um, have been, you know, living and playing in McCormick Field for almost a hundred years now, and and it's uh, and that's what I loved about it. You know, my family when we were going around to minor league ballparks and collecting ballparks that we did then that I, that I still do as I travel for for ESPN. The first time we went to McCormick Field, it was in the old ballpark, just a couple of years before they tore it down and rebuilt it. That ballpark was the same structure that was built in 1924 was the same structure that was that was played in by Babe Ruth and by Lou Gehrig and by Jackie Robinson. And the field itself was still the same when I arrived in 1994. But you could still, even after a couple of years, you could still smell the paint, you know, from that brand-new ballpark that was built, that concrete ballpark that was built on the side of that mountain um, that surrounded that amazing historic field. So, yeah, it's – um, I, I always say this, and you'll appreciate this. My – ultimate measurement of how great a sports facility is, is what does it feel like when it's empty? You know, when you go into Wrigley field, when it's empty, it, it, you can feel it. You get your chills, right? You you can feel the ghost. You go to Lambeau field, right? You go to Fenway park for me in, in motorsports, you go to the Indianapolis motor speedway when it's empty in February, you still get the chills, right? You still feel like you are among the greatness of the ghosts that came before you. And that's how I felt the first time I stepped in McCormick field. Uh, that's how I feel when I step into McCormick field now. And it's not just Jackie Robinson and Willie Stargell and Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and Ty Cobb who all played there. It's also, you know, those hundreds of players that we forgot their names. They never made the big leagues, but you, to me, call me sentimental, call me what you want to call me. When I walk into that ballpark, when it's empty, on a Tuesday night when the team's on the road, man, I can feel those ghosts kind of whispering to me. But that's not what your job was to be in awe, right? Tell us, tell us what the job was like. And I think this, you know, obviously 1994, it's a certain period of time. You're mentioning minor league baseball being a little bit more brighter, more brightly lit because of the, the, the major league uh, uh, issues when it comes to uh, uh, going on strike and that kind of stuff. Um, And we're also talking about a time, Sadly, it seems like it was just yesterday, but it's clearly years now in the past. Uh, baseball sort of had a um, a little bit more of a defensible moat, I guess, around it in terms of its yeah. uh, firm in part in the firmament of, of pro sports, certainly in the spring and summer. 
Um, what, uh, what, what is an intern supposed to do? And do you have any specific duties or are you part of like a little general pool, if you will, of hired help? You do everything. I mean, you know, I, and in fact, in the book, so my wife, bless her heart, gives me the hardest time because I never throw anything away. Like I have everything like it, like it's pay stubs and papers and, you know, mementos picked up over the years. And I still have an entire folder of paperwork from that summer in 1994. And maybe the most precious item I still have is what they handed us the very first day. And it was myself um, and, and two other interns. And we actually had four by the time the summer was over with. And they handed us a sheet of paper with your game day duties. And you, and you rotated, you know, on a, on a monthly basis. And you had the office intern. You had the concessions intern. And then you had the intern that helped up in the press box. And, uh, you know, for, for a few weeks, if you're office intern, you are selling tickets and you are um, at the copy machine printing out stats and you are uh, faxing information to the parent club, the Colorado Rockies, and you're helping players get their bills paid. And you're making sure that the scouts can get in from the airport. And then if you're the concessions intern, you're, you're changing kegs in the cooler. And you're uh, you're making sure you thaw enough hamburger patties and hot dogs for that day. You're mixing a snow cone mix, which, by the way, uh, if you, anybody listen with little kids out there, do not give your child a snow cone past the fifth inning of a baseball game. Because let me tell you the deal: you take a gallon, empty gallon milk jug, you put the hottest water you can possibly get into it, you put a pound of sugar into a one gallon milk jug. And a tiny little packet of of some sort of flavored powder, be it grape, blue, you know, cherry, whatever, and you mix that up. That's a lot of sugar in one snow cone. <laughs> and so you're you're in charge of doing that. But no matter what your job was at the ballpark, and it changed on an almost daily basis, everyone's job included at the bottom of that list of everyone's um, you know uh, list of duties was tarp, because as soon as it rained. As soon as it started to rain, as soon as we thought it might rain, no matter what you were doing, you dropped what you were doing and you ran to the field and you participated in the tarp pull. And if you had enough people, the tarp pull was a beautiful thing to watch, but you usually did not have enough people and the tarp pull turned into more of a tarp drag. Yeah, you've, you've got that uh, that sheet uh, uh, in the in the middle section here of your book. A lot of great pictures here. Your scrapbook is uh uh, robust, uh, shall we say, um, which is <laughs> again, but, much to my wife's chagrin. Well, I have no, it all. It, it, makes, it was it, been 30 her, years. Make, you get, tell her it makes for a great, for a great book, uh, copy for sure. I, another sort of great visual in here is, uh, you call it the infamous uh, page, but uh, I love how the fact in the, um, in the program, uh, you, the interns are listed right next to the, uh, the groundskeeper and the chaplain. In your program, yeah. so you can't tell it can't tell the game without the scorecard, and and there you are. Uh, it had to feel like you were kind of a big deal, but then also at the same time, maybe not so much. No, and and, and what's interesting is there's two pages with the staff, and and, and this other thing too. We have 71 home games, and this is a professional baseball team, and the full time staff was six people, and you throw in a handful of one hundred dollar week interns. And then you have Grady Gardner. Of course, that's his name. He was the uh, the assigned groundskeeper uh, from the county, Buncombe County. And then you had the chaplain. 
these are part-time staff members or paid from elsewhere. And then you had us interns and the best and worst part of that program that you're talking about. And again, these photographs are, are in the book and, and also the story behind those photographs. But my buddy Carlton Adcock, still to this day, one of my favorite people. He's a friend from college. He's a friend from the tourists. He's a friend now. Carlton and I started, and they're like, hey, we need to take y'all's pictures for the program. We're like, great. And they just handed us these really cheap golf shirts, these white golf shirts from the from the clearance rack in the, in the souvenir store that had the old Asheville Tourist logo on it with a mountain and it just as Asheville Tourist. And they stood us in front of a just a center block wall with a Polaroid camera and took these pictures and the sun was out and we're squinting and it literally looks like a mugshot. And then there's the photographs for the full-time staff and it was sponsored by glamour shots. And for you youngsters out there that don't know what glamour shots is you used to be able to go to the mall, the shopping mall and glamour shots, you would fork over some money and then they would, they would fix your hair up and they put too much makeup on you. And they would put like a soft light filter on you and they would take your picture and everyone looked like a marshmallow, you know, in these glamour shots pictures. Well, Gary Saunders, who was the, the assistant general manager and a fantastic salesman, he got a deal with glamour shots. So the full-time staff had their pictures taken with glamour shots. Meanwhile, Carlton and I looked like we just murdered someone and we're on the lamb from the law <laughs> in our pictures. And so, yeah, I can't decide what's worse. What was it worse when looking back now that your picture looked like uh, you were shocked and had just been arrested or the, the picture that where you went through the glamour shots uh, at the mall, I personally will take the mug shot over the glamour shots. Uh, it, one has to see this in the inset of the book to fully yeah. appreciate what you've just said. And it, uh, it, it, you do not disappoint in your description. Uh, so I, I will tell you that. So folks, as you're getting the book, uh, uh, by all means, go, go right to that page. Um, but, but what you're describing in general though, does not surprise, right? Uh, this is minor league baseball. And, and frankly, in the era when, you know, there was a, 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 I'm sure there still is, but certainly in the nineties, right. Um, there's a romance around it, right? I mean, Bull Durham right. came out in the late '80s, and you know, there's, there's, it's always has, it's always had sort of this kind of uh, mystical and and sort of fun and and uh, sometimes outrageous kind of uh, 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 association with it, right? So, but it seems like it's fit in the build based on kind of that understanding of the sport at the time. Yeah, if you've seen Bull Durham, and and if you haven't, please watch it. Um, Ron Shelton, who wrote and directed the film. He played minor league baseball. And I know that because I've read his bio and I've read his books, but I also know that because there's no way he could have possibly nailed the feel of the ballpark and the characters in that ballpark like he did unless he had experienced it. And I think a lot of people watch Bull Durham and assume that it's overcooked, right? That, that it's caricatures. There's no way that, you know, the play-by-play -play guy sounded like that. There's no way they did the tobacco growers of Eastern North Carolina cash drop from a helicopter. You think there's no way there's a Millie hanging out in the ballpark, just waiting to hook up with ballplayers. It's all for real. Like it's all, it all happens, not just in Asheville with the tourists the summer that I worked at McCormick field, but right now in every minor league ballpark, you know, more than a hundred of them around the country, you name the town, you know, whether it's Winston-Salem, North Carolina, or whether it's the Rancho Cucamonga Quakes, Every ballpark has this cast of characters. 
And I was so excited with this book to be able to bring these characters that I experienced and and mingled with and and fell in love with uh, to life. You know, I, I, I write it in the book. You know, I remember when I was in college and the Simpsons was kind of a new thing. And there was a poster that had every single character from the Simpsons, like hundreds of them in one poster. That's what a minor league ballpark is like. And you think there's no way these people exist in real life, but the reality is they do. And, uh, and you know, I, I, I lived in and among them. And when I'm in ballpark, minor league ballparks now, um, all due respect to the players on the field, where I'm looking is I'm looking at, uh, you know, who's shagging the foul balls and who's serving the hot dogs and who looks like they slept underneath the grandstand last night. Because to me, those are the people that really make minor league baseball, minor league baseball. Well, I, I want to get to that angle in a second, but I do also though want to kind of focus a little bit on the players. I mean, you have a, a, a uh, perhaps unwittingly kind of um, uh, uh, a poignant, if you can call it that, uh, photo in here uh, of the, uh, I guess at, the, at that moment in time when the pictures were taken, right? Uh, which is speaks to what I'm going to get to uh, uh, lineup of uh, of the the roster of the team of the Asheville Tourists in 1994. Uh, that one, by the way, uh, sponsored by Liquidation Barn, but that's a whole. Right. <laughs> So if you, which, which is a, a kind of ironic in and of itself, because, you know, it's like, Hey, you're getting rid of stuff. You're getting rid of people, you know, I don't think of liquidation part, but um, you do say in your little sticky note there here on the, in, in the book, the, that uh, only three of the 24 players ever made it to the big show. And yeah. I guess that is, that's not uncommon, but it really kind of does put the sort of playing aspect of this in perspective, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and, those are the 24 players you see in that photograph. By the end of the summer, I think there had been another dozen players that were on the roster at one point or another. And, yeah, only three of those players made the big leagues, and really only two of them stuck. You know, we had a couple of major leaguers that were coming down on rehab, and and they played some games in the big leagues. But but in that team photograph, you see Edgar Velasquez, and and his he eventually changed his name to Edgar Clemente. He was Roberto Clemente's nephew, um, and he only played in the big leagues for a minute. You know, a cup of coffee, as the players like to call it. And then John Thompson, who was a pitcher, and, and any Atlanta Braves fans listening will remember John Thompson. He was a key member of some of the successful Braves teams. You know, a decade later, and then Jamie Wright, and we're talking about Bull Durham. You know, Bull Durham, of course, the great character Nuke Lelouch. Uh, Jamie Wright was our Nuke Lelouch. You know, he was the he was what we call the bonus baby. He had signed a big uh, signing bonus with his contract as a first round draft pick of the Colorado Rockies. Uh, he was a can't miss prospect. You know, coming out of high school in Oklahoma City, he turned down some college scholarships uh, in order to play uh, professional baseball. And Jamie knocked around the big leagues for more than a decade. You know, as a middle reliever, but had to fight for it. And so even this can't-miss prospect that we had been told would be the next Roger Clemens, um, you know, Jamie had to, I mean, slug his way out through the big leagues uh, for a dozen years um, before, uh, you know, and, and by no stretch was a Hall of Famer. Um, and I don't never came close to a World Series ring, but grounded out during the big leagues forever. So, yeah, that to me, is it's interesting, too, because – you know, keep in mind, I was right out of college. So the players on this team at, at the, the first rung of the minor leagues 
we were the same age, but we were never close because, you know, they were professional athletes and I was a $100 a week intern. And it was kind of a natural moat that was built, you know, dug between the two of us. And, um, and what's been interesting when I was working on, on the book was reaching back out to Jamie Wright and Keith Grunewald and, and some of the players that were on that team. And, you know, our reaction was, man, we should have hung out back in the day. But that just didn't feel like that's what it was. And a lot of that had to do with, you know, the rift that existed between, you know, the players and everyone else in Major League Baseball. All right, what's this? Game time? Fantastic. Hey, buying tickets to your favorite events shouldn't be stressful. With killer deals on last-minute tickets and their best price guarantee, you can snag the tickets without the stress with the Game Time app. And I will tell you, the Game Time app has gotten me out of a couple of jams on more than a few occasions. I'll tell you, a couple of weeks back, I travel fairly often for work. I was stuck in New York. I had uh, dinner plans fall through uh, during a business trip. I was leaving the next morning, uh, but had some time on my hands. And what's a sports guy like me to do? Well, scouring around to see if there are any events going on. And sure enough, the Knicks were playing the Nets at home at the world's most famous arena. So about an hour before the game, I fired up the Game Time app and uh, found a decently priced ticket. I won't tell you what (laughs) the people around me paid for their ticket, but it certainly wasn't nearly as expensive as theirs. And I got to watch the Knicks uh, uh, in a rare uh, moment of uh, uh, amazingness uh, kick the snot out of the nets. Uh, but that's uh, game time is uh, the place uh, to get your last-minute tickets. Uh, they've got a tremendous set of deals, flash deals they call them, uh, and last-minute tickets. Uh, they're easy to find and buy uh, for just about every kind of event you want, sports, and entertainment, music, that kind of stuff. The images, the seat views are just perfect. They're great. That's that's always like the, the big uh, conundrum when you're looking at a, uh, a seating chart. You have no idea where you're going to be, uh, what your view is going to be like. And Game Time's got uh, probably the best imagery that I've seen of any of the uh, ticket sites out there. And, of course, they've got a lowest price guarantee, including event cancellation protection. So you know you're going to be covered in case. As a matter of fact, that the Game Time guarantee means that you'll always get the best price. And if you find tickets in the same section uh, and row for less, Game Time will credit you 110% of the difference. Uh, don't believe me? Try it for yourself. Download the Game Time app now, create an account, and then on us, use the code GOODSEATS for $20 off of your first purchase. Again, that's the Game Time app. And uh, it's also, uh, you can check them also out at gametime.co. Uh, but get the app, download the app now, create an account, and use the code GOODSEATS for 20 bucks off your first purchase. Terms apply for sure. Last-minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. It's game time. Thank you, Game Time, for your sponsorship of this week's episode. And now, back to our conversation. I guess from a product perspective and a marketing perspective, I I wonder how the ever-changing nature of the roster, right? Because it affects, frankly, how you go to the field, you know, with your team, with various moving parts and stuff, many times beyond 
players control. Um, and it's from a similar perspective, marketing, right? I mean, in essence, it's a club, uh, it's a team, it's a market, uh, fans, you want to sort of create some kind of marketing connectivity, if you will, between the fans and the players and personify them and stuff. But, you know, the irony of all of it is that, you know, as the team may do well or not collectively, um, the, the whole kit and caboodle is really for them to kind of do well almost as individuals so that they can either move up or frankly move out. Right. It's, it, it's, it's almost of a, a prefers a perverse kind of logic as to why the whole thing even exists. Yeah. And it's weird. And it's funny because over the years, um, as I have known guys who played in the minors for years and who became big leaguers, I mean, you know, colleagues of mine at ESPN and they express a degree of frustration that when they would get to the end of a minor league season and they had a chance to win a Southern league championship or, or a South Atlanta league championship or a California league championship. And they would be frustrated by their teammates because their teammates weren't worried about winning games. Their teammates were worried about getting three hits that night because they're trying to make the jump to double A and triple A and eventually the major leagues. And so, yeah, it's, it's a weird thing. And, but as a team, if you're the Asheville tourists, you know, what you're trying to do is you're trying to sell the Asheville tourists. And if you have, you know, a, a major league player or a can't miss prospect, then you promote them as much as you can. And that summer, you know, the Birmingham Barons have Michael Jordan, which was the easiest promotion of all time. But, you know, in the end, you're pushing the team and you're pushing civic pride. And this is our team. You, you know, you really, it's almost like collegiate athletics, you know, and, and in college athletics, which is what I cover primarily in my day job, you know, the University of Tennessee or Notre Dame or Southern California, they're selling laundry, right? They're selling the team. They're selling the colors. They're selling the mascot. They're selling this is your school. Uh, they can't really sell the athletes because they only have them for a limited time. Even the greatest college athletes are only there for three or four years. And, and in minor league baseball, you know, if you if you – catch a hot one and, you know, let's say you're the Greensboro Hornets and you have Derek Jeter, then yeah, you promote him when you can. But the also reality is he wasn't Derek Jeter yet, right? He was three or four years away from being the captain. He just was a 20 year old that was playing in minor league baseball. So yeah, from a marketing perspective, you're selling the team, you're selling the ballpark, you're selling promotions, you're selling a good time. It's a lot easier for the Asheville tourists to sell that the Blues Brothers Act is going to perform during the game tonight than it is trying to convince you that this shortstop that we have, you know, maybe one day might be a big leader. So it's the experience versus the exactly. play and how yeah. well the team is doing. And you're it, selling it, baseball, right? Well, you're, you're, the team is doing well. That's stars, a lot of, yeah, exactly. the team's doing well. It's, it's, a, it's an extra. It's a bonus, right? Exactly right. And, and it's, um you know, now we had moments like Darren Holmes, who was the, the closer for the Colorado Rockies, was an Asheville native. And when Darren Holmes, who, who in 1993 had finished in the top five in the National League in saves, Darren Holmes was on injury rehab. And instead of going to Colorado Springs or going to Visalia or going to one of the other Colorado Rockies affiliates, New Haven, uh, Darren Holmes asked, requested, to go to Asheville, which was way below his station, 
but he asked to go there because that's where he was from. And so when we had Darren Holmes on the Asheville Tourist roster for a few nights in the summer of 94, we absolutely promoted that. And we sold out, we sold a lot of tickets off of that. But the reality is, you know, the other 68 games that year, what we were selling was you can get a cheap beer and you can get a cheap hot dog. And, um, and yeah, you might get to see, uh, you know, Captain Dynamite explode in, in his coffin of death. We're going to give you some sort of entertainment. And, and along the way, if you get to see some guys who end up playing for the big leagues, uh, then yeah, that's just a bonus. Yeah, we had uh, Jesse Cole here on uh, a couple of weeks back on the Savannah Bananas sort of story, and and that's sort yeah. of like the the ultimate expression of that. I mean, like, well, well it's almost like uh, they've taken and successfully so, and uniquely and brashly so. You know, let's let's dispense with the uh, the formalities of a quote unquote league and and players who are you're never going to remember or see again, and just like let's go all in and put down all the chips on on the experience. And, and by the way, while we're at it, let's also expand and change and make more fan friendly, even the rules and what you're actually, the product is going to on the field is going to be. Yeah. And it's funny too, because like I have a teenage daughter, I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. We have a fantastic triple A team here, the Charlotte Knights. I've been a season ticket holder in my entire adult life. And when my daughter was young, the, the baseball game was almost, that was the sideshow. She wanted to go, to see the superstars, you know, which were all these characters in these inflatable mascot costumes, or, or she wanted to go to see Homer the dragon, you know, the home mascot. She wanted to go to see those things because that's what minor league baseball is. And um, that was part of what was so amazing about it. the summer of 94. We had a guy who was an Elvis impersonator who referred to himself as Elvis himself. And, you know, we had, and I mentioned earlier, we had Captain Dynamite in his exploding coffin of death. And this guy for decades would just lay down in a makeshift coffin packed with dynamite and literally detonate himself (laughs) and then somehow get up and walk away. And, you know, we sold those things all summer long. And I can tell you, based on the crowds that I saw outside the ballpark, um, no one showed up to see hey, Jermaine Dye is playing for the Macon Braves, and we're pretty sure he's going to be a Major League All-Star. You should come see him, even in Braves country. That was not a selling point at all. But if Jermaine Dye happened to be playing on the same night that Shelly Fabre was coming into town from the sitcom Coach, you know, and Elvis's old girlfriend uh, to throw out the first pitch, you know, then we get a crowd. <laughs> so, yeah, we're selling the event and the experience of baseball. And they still do in the minor leagues. They, they everywhere you go, the, the the promotions are what sell. Fireworks that sells, right? Giveaways that still sells. You know, some sort of entertainment between innings that still sells. And uh, you know, Savannah Bananas have taken that and, and multiplied it by a thousand. All right. Well, two prongs there. One, how do the players feel about that? Because you know, if you're trying to make the show, you're just out of, you know, you're at a rookie league, you're moving up or, or worse, you're, you're coming down for, you know, some, uh, uh, some rehab and that kind of stuff. and wondering if you're ever going to get a chance to get back up. Um, it's gotta be a little disheartening to know that you're not even the sideshow for this, this, yeah. this kind of thing. But what the, but what the coaches will tell you and what the scouts will tell you is that that teaches focus, right? If you have the ability to focus and to go three for four with a couple of doubles 
or strike out 12 on a Tuesday night in Columbia, South Carolina in front of 300 people when no one's there to see it. If you can focus on that night, then you absolutely will be able to focus if you're pitching for the Cardinals against the Reds at Bush Stadium, right? And, and so if you have the ability to focus in that in, in those situations, then that probably will tell the people who are ultimately going to decide whether or not you get to be a big leaguer uh, that you have the wherewithal to be a big leaguer. And well, if you have a terrible night, you know, in, in front of that crowd, but then you come back a couple nights later and bounce back, uh, then that really tells them who you're made of. But, well, here's the other prong then. So so what of the promotional machine? I mean, I, you, you all must have been constantly under the gun, even in the midst of the season. I'm sure there's a whole big plan sort of in place, like what night's going to be this and what giveaways that and – you know, and and frankly, having with what six people or seven people, maybe not even not even that on some some occasions. Uh, how do you sort of execute all of those things? And and I can't imagine they all go according to plan either. No, well, and and that was the gift that I had the summer that I worked for the Asheville Tourists because Ron McKee who was my boss, was the general manager and co-owner of the Asheville Tourists, and by any measure should be in every minor league baseball Hall of Fame, and in my mind, every sports promotional Hall of Fame, to watch Ron McKee do his work. I mean, he the local paper called him the P.T. Barnum of minor league baseball. Ron is the one who came up with, speaking of Bull Durham, Ron's the one that, that had the term greatest show on dirt, and Ron Shelton – who, if you watch Bull Durham, the closing scene in the movie where Crash Davis hits his his record-breaking home run, he was playing for the Asheville Tourists in McCormick Field, where I used to work. And when Ron Shelton saw that that saying over the door, "Greatest Show on Dirt," he took that with him and used it in the movie. Uh, and unfortunately, Ron McKee, my boss, didn't have a trademark. What he did have a trademark was Thirsty Thursday. And if you go to any minor league park, any major league park in the country on a Thursday night and they have Thirsty Thursday, and you can get a big giant beverage for cheap, you can thank my old boss, Ron McKee, for that. It's everywhere. I mean, listen, I was on Twitter uh, on a Thursday just last week, and every Thursday, Thirsty Thursday is a trending topic on Twitter because people are explaining this is what they're going to drink that night. So to watch Ron do his job, and then Gary Saunders, uh, who was the assistant general manager and went on to become a general manager of minor league baseball, to watch them brainstorm ideas and to think about, well, let's try this, or let's try that. Ron came up with shirt off your back night. And players would would play in a game, and then when the ball game was over with, they would literally take their jerseys off that they had just worn in the game, find someone in the grandstand, and hand them their jersey from the night. So coming up with those ideas, um, that's what draws you to the part. And that's my favorite part to this day of attending minor league baseball games is seeing what kind of creative ideas. And, and there's a lot of copycat, obviously. But I really love seeing the genuinely creative ideas um, that these general managers and these salespeople come up with. Because the one summer I worked there, I was in awe of it. And I, I still don't know how they, they come up with something new. All these teams come up with something new every single summer. And I don't know how they do it. As you were going through this internship, um, uh, besides – I guess the question of how you're making ends meet. I mean, I'm guessing you're eating a lot of ballpark food just happened to be hanging yeah. around. Stealing um, it is what we're doing. Yeah. Um, what are you, what are you thinking this potentially leads to? Or was it, 
you were so in the moment that you just kind of were just going and doing, trying to do the best job you could. I mean, I'm curious as to what your your colleagues were trying to sort of get out of a job like this and maybe what even you were thinking this could lead to or, or perhaps what, what door this might open for you after it was all said and done. Well, the four of us, the four interns that we had that summer, um, you know, Carlton Adcock, uh, Stephen Witt, who we called Swish. I still call him Swish to this day because he's the smoothest, coolest dude I ever met. And, and another, Lee Tillery was our other intern. Those three guys were sports management majors. You know, their dream was to run a ballpark. Their dream was to be the ops manager at a football stadium, at a baseball stadium, you know, soccer stadium, you name it. Uh, I was a communications major. My dream was to be a play-by-play analyst or a play-by-play, um, you know, voice or word analyst. I, my dream was to be on the microphone. Um, and when I took this job as an intern, uh, the Asheville Tourists were one of the few teams in the South Atlantic League, one of the few teams in the country that did not have a radio network. And there were a lot of reasons for that. But the main reason was that Ron McKee, the boss, didn't want to spend the money to do it, especially in the mountains of North Carolina where it was hard to get a radio signal out to all the all the residents because all the, literally this ballpark sits surrounded by mountains. But I went to Asheville with the hope of convincing them and with a little bit, not a promise, but a little bit of conversation from the bosses about we might want to do this one day of starting a radio network for the tourists. This is pre-internet, y'all. So these days you just plug it to the internet, go to, you know, the Asheville Tourist website and listen to the game. Oh my God, this this was this was the time this was the frankly folks, this was the time when I remember if this was around the same time. I mean you you I remember ads in USA Today where you could actually dial into a 900 number if you desperately wanted to listen to an out of market game of any sort, right? So this is, yeah, this is ancient by comparison to to what's available today. Mark Mark Cuban was still several years away from starting broadcast.com and becoming a Absolutely, yes. For for those of you who don't know, Mark Cuban made his money uh, because he was an Indiana basketball fan, University of Indiana basketball fan. He moved to Texas and couldn't listen to Indiana Hoosiers games and figured out a way via the internet, the World Wide Web at the time, to listen to Indiana games. And then he ended up doing deals and deals and deals and deals and sold his company for you know a gazillion dollars. That did not exist in 1994. I tried and came very close to putting together a radio contract um, for the tourists that summer, but again, in the end, um, Ron just didn't see the money in it, and his margins are always tight, and he wanted to figure out a way to make money, and I couldn't sell that to him. So my dream was to be a broadcaster and. You know, I, I'll i say this, too. This book starts – Welcome to Circus of Baseball starts with my interview at ESPN right out of college for an entry-level job. And I could not have performed worse in this interview. Uh, they asked a lot of hockey questions. Uh, they leaned away from where I was from. As soon as they heard my Southern accent, the questions were about hockey and the questions were about, the you know, the AFC West – and, you know, <laughs> the, the National League West. And it went away from what I knew as a sports fan because of where I had grown up. And so it was a year before ESPN called, and, and thankfully they did. But my dream was to be, again, was to be a play-by-play announcer uh, for a minor league baseball team. And uh, so naturally I went to work for the one team that did not have <laughs> radio network. 
But you did get a uh, a baseball card out of it. Do you want to sort of give a, our audience uh, what that is? And I, I, I'm not tipping off too many of these stories here, but this no, is no. kind of great. And the photo is great, too. Well, I appreciate it. But that, yeah, so uh, this was also this summer was important because it was the you know, this was the summer that what, what everyone out there knows about minor league baseball now is all the goofy mascots, right? The Carolina Mudcats and the Hickory Crawdads and the Rancho, Rancho Cucamonga Quakes and the Quad City River Bandits, you know, the, the Rocket City Trash Pandas. I mean, I could go on and on and on. 1994 was really the dawn of that. And so the Asheville tourists had no interest in changing their mascot name but they did change the mascot itself and they came up with, again, this was, this was Ron and, and Gary Saunders. They came up with Ted E middle initial E tourist, Ted E tourist, a bear, because we're in the mountains of Western North Carolina and there's a lot of bears and Ted E tourist was a tourist. So Teddy had a Hawaiian shirt and sunglasses and carried a suitcase with stickers on all over it from all the places he had visited which, by the way, was full of cookies from the local grocery store chain uh, that kids could have during the game. And uh, we had a local actor, uh, Jack, who um, was a very serious method actor uh, from the local you know, acting troupe. Perfect. And he took it a little too seriously. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis had been in Asheville just a couple years earlier uh, shooting Last of the Mohicans, and I blame Daniel Day-Lewis for Jack being way too much of a method actor when he's doing Teddy Tours. But Jack did not show up for photo day. And this was really the second or third day that we had the team in town. The Asheville tourist team had reported from spring training from Arizona. And this is a big day. It's photo day. We're taking the team photo, which is in, in the book, um, and we're taking the baseball card pictures. And we're waiting on Jack the actor. We're waiting on Jack the actor. He never shows up. And so Gary Saunders, uh, our assistant GM, said, does anyone here have any mascot experience? Well, I had been the Traveler's Rest High School Devil Dog for a couple of games my senior year in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. I go, yeah, I've been a mascot. So they put the Teddy Tourist uniform on me uh, with the big plaster head and the Hawaiian shirt. It did not fit me. Um, I was about 100 pounds lighter then than I am now, which I still was. And uh, and Jack was much bigger than I was. So in the I got my baseball card picture taken. And so – I still framed, uh, literally sitting here talking to you right now, I'm looking at it, framed over my desk, uh, the official FLIR baseball card of Ted E. Tourist. And that's me, clearly um, wearing a costume that is way too big for my very lean body um, and striking a Captain Morgan pose with one knee cocked in the air. And, uh, yeah, so my dream, everyone's dream is to be on a baseball card, right? And uh, and I'm, I'm in there. You just... You have to take my word for it that it's me inside that bear head. <laughs> yeah, well, you look good doing it for sure. Thank I, you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I give you give you credit for that. Um, and so many more things we could do it. And, and I, the, the book is just chock full of stuff, and it's it it's great. And we'll we'll promote the hell out of it for sure when we uh, get this episode up. But let me just sort of maybe get cul de sac this with. So um, I, I know it's kind of hard to do, but the the the. Uh, the denouement of the story, though, winds up getting you back to actually to ESPN, and you've done more than your fair share of have. Uh, you've had more of your fair than your fair share of success at ESPN uh, to date. How did how did what happened after this was over? What were you thinking you wanted uh, to do like immediately next? 
And then how quickly did the ESPN opportunity represent itself? So when I interviewed at ESPN, uh, the legend that interviewed everyone at ESPN, whether you were trying to be a sports center anchor or whether you were trying to be an entry-level production assistant like I was, a man named Al Jaffe. And at ESPN, we call them the 79ers. ESPN was founded in 1979. Al Jaffe was a was an original employee from 1979, a 79er. And Al interviewed me in Bristol, Connecticut. The interview went so badly. When it was over with, I, I looked at Mr. Jaffe and I said, well, well, how will I know that that I'm you know, going to work at ESPN or not going to work at ESPN? And he said to me, he said, I interview uh, kids right out of college every day. I rank them from 1 to 100. And depending on where you are in the rankings, um, you know, I start – if we have jobs open, I start calling at 1 and I call down the list and, until, you know, I find someone to take the job. And he said, I rank everyone from 1 to 100. And you have one year from today. If you've not heard from me one year from today, then ESPN will, is not going to be calling. Uh, he called me 363 days later. <laughs> I was in the press box at wow. McCormick Field getting set up for a game that night. I still hold the record. Al retired a few years ago, and I called out and I go, do I hold the record? He goes, you will always hold the record for longest time <laughs> between inter- interview and hire. Um, I was two days away from expiration. But a week earlier, um, we're in August. Uh, there's only a couple weeks left in, in the Asheville Tourist 1994 season. And Ron McKee had called me in his office and had said to me, he said, I don't know what the job will be, but I would like for you to come back next season and work for us full time. And I, of course, was said yes. And, and he said, we might even try to work out this radio network thing. Probably not, but we'll see. And then a week later, ESPN called. And um, and I struggled with it. I stayed up all night. I couldn't decide what to do. I had to make a decision by the next day. And when I got back to work the next day, Ron met me at the door. And he said, I need the phone number for ESPN and made me call ESPN sitting in his office. He said, you're taking the job. That's it. And so as the years went by, and I was very thankful and, and appreciative and um to to continue with ESPN and been there basically my entire adult life. Um, I always was quick to give Ron credit for making me take that job without hesitation. And Ron was always very quick to take credit for everything I did at ESPN. So it all worked out. No, and that's great, and that's that's why I wanted to sort of uh, use that sort of as this. So it's 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 almost harmonious, right? Um, yeah. uh, maybe you don't. Maybe in the moment doesn't seem as such, but. Um, uh, it's funny how sort of things uh, wind up, uh, you know, equating and 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 becoming right. And uh, even though it's a uh, a zigzag sort of uh, sort of pattern, have you? Uh, I I'm trying to remember if you alluded to it before. But have you been back to the park in any way, shape, or form? Uh, and or would you? Will you? Uh, as this book now uh, sort of hits mainstream release, I have been back to McCormick Field uh, a handful of times. Um, my daughter, who is, uh, she's 18 now, about to go to college. And uh, when she was old enough, uh, elementary school, I took her to, to McCormick Field, to Asheville. And I walked her all over the place. said, this is where dad was almost killed by the tarp. And this is where dad was almost killed by the Dairy Queen saucer machine. And this is where dad, you know, used to mix the, the, uh, the snow cone uh, blue juice and I walked around the ballpark and we've been back a couple of times since, but 
I'm so thankful for the support from the Asheville tourists because the team has been bought and sold twice now. Um, Ron McKee and, and, and the co-owner of the team, they sold the team years ago. But, but the current general manager of the team, Larry Hawkins, was an intern just a couple of years after me. And, and Larry is really quick to include me in everything. And so as we launched the book in early April, they're going to have me back at the ballpark. Uh, I'm going to get to throw out a first pitch. Um, I'm a little nervous about that because I used to hand the baseball to people and say, all right, you know, uh, you know, general manager of so-and-so Chevrolet dealership, you got to throw out the first pitch. Good luck. Uh, but yeah, they've been very supportive and, and so has everyone that, that I worked with at the ballpark. Honestly, so, so Tom Wolf, Thomas Wolf, who, who famously wrote, you can't go home again. You know, that was about him writing a book based on his childhood in Asheville and then making everyone mad in Asheville because they didn't like how they were portrayed in the book and he couldn't go home again. And as I wrote this book, I thought about him a lot. His, the home he grew up in was just on the hill above McCormick Field. I thought about Mr. Wolf a lot because um, my my biggest goal here was for everyone to understand how much I love the tourists, how much I love minor league baseball, how much I love McCormick Field, but especially how much I love the people I work with. And so as I have sent the book out to all of those folks that worked in the ballpark, um, that's been the most nervous I've been is to wait and see how they felt about the book. And uh, knock on wood, they uh, they seem to have liked it so far, so I think everyone else will too. All right, last question, and I'm going to let you unabashedly promote. Uh, we have to ask the question, We've in, in all of our various baseball conversations over the last geez, year plus now, uh, I've got to ask you, given your unique purview uh, via this story and, and since, uh, your thoughts about sort of the um, – contraction and uh, uh, absorption, I guess, by Major League Baseball of the mostly the minor league baseball uh, system. Um, I, I, I Frankly, I feel a little more than wistful uh, and a little bit more towards the negative side of that. Um, but w- what are your thoughts, given you kind of worked during the heyday, if you will, of, of some of the, the zaniness and the biggest spotlight of, of, of the minor league version? Um, Good, bad, and different. What are your thoughts about the state of minor league uh, today, and in, in 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 respect to that major leagues' oversight? I hate it. I hate everything major league baseball is doing to the minor leagues right now. Um, I feel like they've taken advantage of the minor leagues that were crippled by 2020. Um, it's a, a sport that is 100% reliant on on front on on, on the turnstile on ticket sales. And in 2020, not a single minor league baseball game was played in the United States because of the pandemic. And Major League Baseball, knowing that the minor league uh, contract was up as far as management is concerned, swept in and took over. Uh, They immediately shut down uh, several dozen teams. They did so in markets that had had teams forever. Um, You know, a Burlington, Vermont, that had, had a team for 100 years, doesn't have it anymore. Uh, Lancaster, California, home of the Jethawks, which was the, the single biggest source of entertainment for the hundreds of military families uh, that live in Central California uh, in the high desert. Uh, they lost their team. And they lost their team because 
the people who run Major League Baseball decided that it was too difficult for their scouts to get to games in Lancaster, California. Um, now they are squeezing the teams who were able to keep the, the cities who were able to keep their teams to make, I'm putting it in air quotes, improvements to their ballparks that they know those teams can't afford. In fact, the Asheville tourists um, just in the last couple of weeks um, went to the county and the city and came up with more than $22 million. Otherwise, we're going to lose their team. And what bothers me is, is that the people in Major League Baseball who are making these decisions, they've never been to a game in Asheville. They've never been to a game, you know, certainly never been to a game in Lancaster, California, or, you know, to see the Woo Sox in Massachusetts. And they certainly have never been out to the Midwest because they're working in Rockefeller Center where Major League Baseball is headquartered. And these are the labor attorneys who, quite frankly, have ruined baseball but whether it's the strike of 94 or whether it's the lockout of 2022 um, and they're making decisions now that they don't understand the impact it has on the cities and the towns that have these minor league teams in them because they've never been there. And so that's what I worry about. What I worry about is, is I worry about, you know, you're telling a brand-new team in Kannapolis, North Carolina, the Cannonballers, who just built a brand-new ballpark that they have based their entire municipal planning future around. And they open that ballpark, and now you've immediately told them they got to spend another $8 million because the shower heads aren't big enough or the doorways aren't wide enough. And that's what it comes down to. And so that's what I worry about is I don't – the beauty of minor league baseball is that it's not corporatized. That's the term I use, you know, and, and what I don't want is I don't want my minor leagues to too much resemble the major leagues. And I hope that the people going forward will understand that, but I fear that they do not. I think that's where it's going, sadly. I mean, you look yep. at that, you extrapolate that to sports broadly. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't want to be the old man yelling at the clouds here, but I mean, you know, there's a lot of new money and, and private equity and, and looking for places to put money, especially given uncertainties in in and cash flows and expectations of of uh, of, of investment and that kind of stuff. And, and I I can't remember a time, you know, where I've just seen. I mean, the valuations of these teams, real or imagined, uh, and and the amounts of money and and now the idea of partial ownerships and now cross league ownerships and that kind of stuff. I th There's too much money. I think all of a sudden chasing uh, current sports and, and ideating new sports, whether it's three or four pickleball leagues or, or whatever. And, 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 and that's, that's going to seep into minor league baseball. The hell it's happening in minor league soccer for sure. Yeah. What you don't want is you don't want everything to look the same. And, you know, like I, like I'll give you an example. So, so, the minor league baseball team in Memphis, triple A team, uh, been with the Cardinals forever. And that was always, no matter what ballpark they were in, they were always this, this kind of cool bastion of creativity. And they always were coming up with great ideas and the ballpark food was amazing. And it just was, it felt like Memphis. Memphis is to me is, is a, is a super eclectic, very, you know, it's a city of, of individualism, right? Your creativity. It stacks records and it's Bill Street and it's Elvis and, and it's it's all those things. And 
as soon as the Cardinals took over that team, they sucked all the life out of it. Even the hot dogs were generic. And so that's what I worry about is, is, you know, is, you know, and I wrote this in the book, um, you know, all these characters that I talk about that worked at the ballpark, whether it's Ron McKee, the boss, or whether it's James, the mountain man, the guy in his overalls who we paid a quarter to go, you know, up in the mountain behind the ballpark fence and, and retrieve, you know, balls during batting practice and get bit by snakes and the whole you know, there's this ballpark full of characters and anyone who thinks that baseball is better off without those characters and without McCormick field and without the Asheville tourists and without creativity, they don't get it. They just don't. And they're not worried about these towns flyover towns, right? Is what they call them. They don't worry about these towns and how much these franchises and these ballparks and these teams and these characters mean to these towns and these cities. Um, you know, all they're worried about is spreadsheet. And um, I don't know any great decision that came from worrying about a spreadsheet first. Yeah, I couldn't have said it any better. Um, all right, what are you going to do to promote this? It's coming out. We're going to – we'll make sure that we get this um, – first of all, this has been fantastic. Thank you for taking the time. And No, thank uh, you. I appreciate you making the time. We're, no, we're, we're going to be what, – what's fun is we've been doing – Doubleday came up with a great idea – uh, in, 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 you know, kind of running parallel to the NCAA basketball tournament, we've done this March mascot madness. We have to keep March and madness separating. So I don't want to get sued. March mascot madness of all these mascots from all these teams. And we've had the, the critter division and the classics division and the weather channel division and the concession stand division. And we've had the best time with this. And, and what's happened now is all these minor league teams that we've included in this bracket. And all these minor league teams. So on Marty and McGee, which is our show we do every Saturday morning on ESPN Radio, and as you've seen at work, I wear a different minor league ball cap every Saturday morning. I've been doing that for three years. I'm up to like almost almost 200 different ones now. And these teams now are wanting to talk about the book, and they're wanting me to come out to the ballpark, and they're wanting me to throw out first pitches and you know make some appearances. And, um, and I'm really excited about it because I think there's a community there. And the fact that I was only a part of that community officially for one summer, but they still, they still include me in it. Um, that's just, that means the absolute world to me. Cause when I was a kid collecting ballparks with my dad and my brother and my mom, um, if you'd have told me that those teams would be calling me, asking me to come out and talk about my book, uh, I'd have told you you were nuts. And, uh, and hopefully we can keep that going all summer. All right, so literally, we could arguably see you at a at a ballpark in in our respective neighborhoods, huh? Yeah, and you know what? Any minor league team listening right now, uh, hit me up at ESPN McGee on Twitter. I, I will I will shamelessly show up, and I would love to tell you that it's only about promoting the book, but the reality is, I'm up to 129 minor league ballparks, and I'm always looking for a new one. So, if uh, if I can find an excuse to show up, and if I can also get in for free. <laughs> that's the dream, right? That's what we talked about at the start of this. The whole point was to figure out a way to go to ball games and get paid to do it. And uh, yeah, maybe that's maybe that's why I wrote the book in the first place. All right, our thanks to uh, Ryan uh, for a wonderful conversation, and my oh my. This is a fun book to get and absorb. Uh, just drink it all in. It's got great photos. Uh, it's uh, got uh, a 
tons of great stories. And if you're looking for sort of the proverbial uh, essence of what minor league baseball behind the scenes was like uh, in the early 90s, arguably when minor league baseball was pure a thing and, uh, uh, you know, less sort of corporatized as it is now. Uh, run, don't walk to get a copy of Welcome to the Circus of Baseball, a story of the perfect summer at the perfect ballpark at the perfect time. And yes, we are looking at you, Asheville tourists. Uh, it is available wherever fine books uh, are found. Uh, and um, it, uh, uh, it is a great read. You will enjoy it. It's a great way to sort of uh, gear shift your way into the arrival of baseball this season is published by Doubleday, uh, and like I said, available wherever you find books. Uh, of course, you can go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com, search up this episode number 298 with Ryan McGee, and you will find a convenient link to that book. You can get the hardcover version, the Kindle version. Uh, I believe there is also an audible audiobook version as well. Uh, and uh, whichever manner you'd like to get this story, uh, you can get it. We'll get a couple of uh uh, nickels or dimes of referral love too. Now, while you're there, you might also want to consider uh, one of uh, Ryan's uh, many other books. Uh, you remember, he's also been a, a NASCAR guy for for a long time. So, the Ultimate NASCAR book uh, from 2007 with Rusty Wallace that he did. Uh, he's got some other great books too. The Road to Omaha, which is his sort of college World Series history book that was uh, out from about uh, 10 years ago. Uh, the um, co-authored uh, book. Uh, with Dale Dale Jr. Uh, about uh, his uh, life story to date, racing to the finish, my story with Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Ryan McGee. Um, uh, lots of other books to consider as well. Uh, there's also, oh, oh, sorry, I forgot one of perhaps one of his um, uh, most in, uh, enduring and endearing books, um, Sidelines and Bloodlines, with uh, his father, Dr. Jerry McGee, uh, and his brother, uh, talking about uh, his dad's uh, uh, college football officiating. A career and a, lot, a bunch of other great stuff. New York Times bestsellers, most of them. Uh, and but also you can follow Ryan uh, just about everywhere in the ESPN platform family. Uh, he writes for ESPN.com. Uh, uh, you can see him and hear him uh, in and around the SEC network. Uh, his show uh, that he co-hosts um, with his pal Marty Smith, called the Marty Marty and McGee. Um, he even writes a column for ESPN.com, which I have uh, uh, taken a liking to over the last couple of years, uh, called The Bottom Ten, uh, where he kind of uh, explains and ranks and discusses the uh, the then each week's bottom or worst teams in college football. Uh, just shake vigorously and you're going to find uh, Ryan McGee just about anywhere you can uh, get ESPN programming, whether it be digital or video or television or whatever. And you can find Ryan on uh, Twitter at ESPN McGee, M-C-G-E-E, at ESPN McGee. Uh, and there's also a convenient link there in his profile to his link tree, which uh, you uh, digital uh, savants out there should know is sort of like the uh, 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 an unfurling, if you will, of various other links. Uh, in this case, Ryan's uh, uh, works and other uh, play, social media hangouts and stuff. Um, while you're, by the way, on uh, Twitter or any of the social media, why don't you follow us uh, as well? We like to publish uh, various things during the course of each week, usually highlighting and hyping uh, whatever episode we're talking about. Uh, you can find us not only at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com for all those previous episodes and stuff, uh, but on uh, Twitter, you'll find us at GoodSeatsStill. Uh, you will find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. And you will also find us uh, on Facebook, the little page devoted to us, 
they are good seats still available. Uh, what else? Uh, you can send us email. Yes. How convenient and um, low key. Yes, we are hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And uh, what else? Our thanks, of course, to the uh, one, the only. They're not booing. They're yelling, Jerry, 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 Jerry Payne, Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. Once again, excellence uh, to be had this week. Thank you, kind sir. And thank you, kind listener. Always appreciate your uh, support of the show. Lots of great content coming your way in the next couple of weeks. Stay tuned. Hopefully you'll be glad you did. Until then, take care and be safe. <laughs>